Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. Hello and welcome to the Indie Cider Podcast, where I play indie games and then interview the developers. My name is Ken Gagney, your host, and this week on episode number 45 for June 15th, 2016, I'm playing Lumo from AAA. Released in May 2016 for PS4, Xbox One, Vita, and Steam, meaning PC, Mac, and Linux. Lumo is an isometric puzzle platformer. If you've ever played Solstice or Equinox on the Super Nintendo, or over in the UK, such as Spectrum, ZX, or Amstrad CPC games such as Head Over Heels or Alienate, then you have a pretty good idea of what this game is like. If you haven't played those games, and no reason why you should because they haven't been made in decades, Lumo is a labyrinth of about 400 rooms that you tackle one at a time to get from one side to the other, collect the items, unlock doors, and etc. The game is set at an isometric perspective, which means it's 3D at an angle. For example, the default controls are if you push up, your character actually moves up and to the left, sort of into the room and to the left. He gets a little bit smaller as he moves up. But you can also configure your controls so that if you push up, you move up and to the right, or you actually just move up. Most of the level's layout require that you do move at a diagonal, but I found it much more natural to actually push a diagonal rather than hold my controller at an angle. The game has a sort of fantasy medieval setting. There aren't a lot of monsters or aliens or the like. In fact, as far as I've played the game, I don't think I've encountered any. It's more environmental puzzles and traps, like spikes or hissing steam pipes that can kill you with a touch, or poisonous sludge that if you fall into it, you die. If you're playing in adventure mode, then you get infinite lives, go you, and a map. If you're playing in old school mode, then you have finite lives, no map, and no save game. Regardless of the mode, your protagonist's abilities are pretty much the same, and that is jumping. That's it, just jumping. You can jump over obstacles, you can jump from one platform to the other, you can jump across barriers and gaps and holes, and, well, that's pretty much it. There will, of course, be levers and buttons and switches to push, pull, and spin, and every now and then there will be some sort of a mini-game, like a minecart racing level. In fact, this game is filled with references to old games. There is a level that looks a lot like Pac-Man. There are levels that reference Marble Madness or I think even Battletoads. The game is not only a modern take on a classic genre, but it's also a love letter to all the games of that era. If you are not familiar with those games, that's fine because all those jokes and allusions do not impact the gameplay whatsoever. In fact, even though I grew up in the 80s and played the same games that Mr. Gareth Noyce, creator of this game, played, there are probably some references that I didn't get, and that's fine, because I still had a great time playing it. It has a great art style, challenging yet fair gameplay, and an unexpected sense of humor. I was playing the PS4 version, I imagine the other versions are quite similar. So on this episode of IndieCider, I will be interviewing Mr. Gareth Noyce of AAA. It is a one-man team, from what I understand. And he is a veteran of the actual AAA industry. In fact, his company is called Triple E-H question mark. Almost like Triple E, but it's pronounced Triple A. In the actual AAA industry, he worked on such games as Black Hawk Down, Crackdown, and Fable 2. About two years ago, he moved to Finland to found AAA, and this is his company's first outing. In the show notes found at IndieCider.net slash 45, you can find this interview paired with gameplay footage as I puzzle my way through the game of Lumo, as well as links to the other interviews that he has conducted, which informed the one you are about to hear. If you do like what you hear, you can check out the game at play-lumo.com, or if you just like the actual audio of this podcast, then you can leave a review on iTunes, which will help other people find this podcast, which is turning two years old next month. 
that, which is amazing. Thank you so much for everybody who's been listening. If you want to recommend more games for future episodes, hit me up on Twitter at GameBits. In the meantime, let's chat with Mr. Noyce. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with the founder of AAA, the developer of Lumo, that being Mr. Gareth Noyce. Hello, Gareth. Hello, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. How are you, sir? I'm good in glorious sunshine and lovely summer weather over here. Calling all the way from Finland, are you? Yep, Helsinki. Now, that's not where you're natively from, is it? No, so I was born in um, Southampton in uh, the UK, which is you know right on the south coast, about an hour outside of London. Um, so south of England is my uh, birthplace, but I've lived in a few places. I spent seven or eight years up in uh, Dundee in Scotland before coming to Finland, so I've travelled around a little bit. So as I understand Finland is a hotbed for mobile app development? Helsinki certainly is, yeah. We've obviously got uh, Supercell down the road. Uh, there's Next Games, Play Raven, uh, Rovio. You know, there's a lot of big hitters in town. Uh, Tampera's got a mixed colossal order, did City Skylines just up the road. Um, there's a few smaller mobile studios up there. So there, there's, you know, a pretty vibrant games industry. Housemark, Frozen Byte on the console PC side. It's obviously smaller than the UK um, and in many senses younger. But it's, uh, it's a very, you know, sort of busy, friendly place to be a game developer. Oh, then you're in good company then. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very nice over here. So Lumo is a game I first became aware of when I saw it at PAX East 2016 in Boston. And in fact, I didn't get my hands on it at that time because the line to play the game was so long. Oh, that's good news. I wasn't actually there, so I, I saw a few photos from the event. But yeah, that was the first time it had been shown publicly in the States. It was a great debut, and I, even though I didn't get my hands on it, I immediately went home and tweeted that it's one of the games I need to get my hands on because it <laughs> looked so much fun and so evocative of the games I grew up with, like, of course, Equinox and Solstice. Yes, yes, those are the two touch points, certainly for the American side. We, we had a lot more in uh, Europe, particularly on the 8-bit computers, but I don't think you had very many on the Apple II, just a couple on the Commodore 64 and Atari. That sounds about right. Now, this game, of course, employs an isometric view, which can create some challenges for the player in the depth perception and the way it approaches 3D and not really knowing exactly where the tiles are as you're jumping onto them. What are the advantages to that sort of view that made you want to create a game using that perspective? Um, There aren't any advantages. Uh, (laughs) people People haven't made isometric games, you know, for nine or ten years, I think there's one that I know of that was about 2006, maybe. And before that, I mean, really, it was a, it's a pseudo-3D presentation for low-power computers, such as the Spectrum or the Amstrad, Commodore 64, the Nintendo NES. Because, um, you know, they could do limited 3D, but probably at about five frames a second, and they certainly couldn't present, you know, this kind of world to the player. So it was just a way of actually, you know, present in space that kind of made sense but as a genre particularly in the european and and certainly the british markets we had a lot of these games starting with uh, ultimate play the game night law attic attack alienate they started off with this filmation engine and that spurred a lot of other developers you know amaru and uh, max headroom you know there was a lot of isometric games the first game that I bought was a game called Head Over Heels by John Rittman and Bernie Drummond. It was also isometric, and it was widely regarded as being you know, the best 8-bit isometric game, certainly through the 80s. And I had a big 
passion for that genre. We used to call it the arcade adventure. Equinox is basically the last big commercial isometric game that I can think of, and that was the Super Nintendo. So I kind of like the circularity of going back and having my first solo game, you know, be the same genre of the, the, the first game that I bought and fell in love with. And it was a way of, you know, doing something a little bit different for my first solo outing, standing out from the crowd. It does offer you a few things from a game design point of view but most of them are disadvantages you you, you're you're constantly spending your time trying to make the rooms you know fairly readable because of what you say that the isometric perspective takes a little bit of getting used to sometimes you can't see if a platform you know is close to the camera or far away from the camera so i ended up actually avoiding nearly all of those problems you know some people are still tr- struggling with some rooms but i very very rarely have any kind of floating platforms near the camera that would look like they're you know at the back of the room if you were reading the room wrong so um if anything it's it's probably more difficult than you know outright advantageous but it does offer a unique look and it's a good throwback to a, a genre of game that used to be incredibly popular that we don't make anymore because we don't need to and that offers interesting kind of playability and game mechanics, which I really have wanted to explore since I was a kid. So Yeah, you said that you created Lumo from your memories of playing games like Head Over Heels and Equinox, as opposed to actually going back and playing those games hands-on and trying to recreate the experience. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, um, I the, the, the push to do Lumo actually came from Steve Pickford, who was the graphic artist of Equinox. Um, we were chatting over Twitter, and we were watching speedruns of Equinox, which kind of started the conversation. I can also remember Equinox pretty well. I spent a whole summer basically just trying to beat it, and it's it's an incredibly difficult game. I don't know if you remember playing it. Oh, I do. And I did beat it once, so I kind of knew most of that. Head Over Heels, I probably could walk straight through now and complete. Um, I can basically remember you know most of it what i wanted to be conscious of though was i didn't want a wholesale lift you know room layouts or map design or key mechanics i wanted lumo to really just you know kind of grow organically and the thing for me is i wanted to get across this feeling that i had when i was a kid you know so lumo is religiously sticks to the template of the religious game uh, the, the original games it's you know discrete rooms very limited um persistence between the rooms rooms will reset you know if you go in and out of them a heavy emphasis on exploration but also trying not to become a zelda dungeon you know even though i can have bigger rooms and i can do certain things it's it would be very easy to become this kind of item lock key you know push secret tunnel type design layout that uh you know any zelda dungeon kind of employs and i didn't want to do that i wanted to really modernize the original template the original genre the the original games but to do that i didn't really want to be encumbered by you know going back studying those games pulling out specific things from because i didn't really want to rip them off i wanted lumo to have its its own personality the the only thing i was i was probably more conscious of was uh, literally just avoiding that that trap of becoming zelda that that was the thing i had to stay more clear of because i was actually playing zelda games 
like the new 3DS one whilst I was making Lumo and it's it's so easy to just go oh that's quite good I'll I'll, I'll use that or I'll do that and it's like I'm you know trying to force myself not to wholesale borrow other people's things and, and just kind of do my own thing so yeah very consciously tried to avoid playing the original games but to be fair I, I pretty much know them off by heart anyway have you since gone back and replayed Equinox or Solstice or Head Over Heels to see if your memories were accurate and if you were accurately inspired? No, not really. I've listened to the feedback from others and they, you know, certainly people my age who remember those games, a lot of people are saying, it, you know, this is completely nailed, you know, the original thing. There's a lot of people, well, not a lot, there's a few people kind of frustrated with like, you know, why is he stuck to this old template and stuff? So again, that's kind of ratification <laughs> that I've done it right. I did, uh, we had the rare replay uh, on Xbox One, so I did introduce my girlfriend to like Night Law and stuff. But no, I, I've played so much of them. The only one I'm, I'm tempted to actually go back and have a quick play of now is Monster Max, which was John Rittman and Bernie Drummond's last isometric game. That was on the Game Boy, normal Game Boy, I think. I haven't played that for a very long time, um, and I've been talking about that quite a lot on Twitter, so I, I was quite tempted to sort of go back to that. But no, nah, the others, I've, I've purposefully purposefully just left you know i've good memories of them and there are a lot of other classic games that inspired this i've seen references or allusions to games like pac-man and i think battle toads but the one that i'm most interested in early on in the game there is an elevator that brings you up to sort of a, a techno land and there's this amazing music playing during <laughs> the elevator ride what is the story behind that music um so there's there's multiple things going on there on the wall there's a picture of a Commodore 64 game called Chimera which was developed by a guy called Shahid Ahmed who used to work at PlayStation and was kind of like an indie evangelist but he's now gone uh, solo and is working on his own game that techno wonderland you're, you're referring to is kind of like my jokey rendition of one of the rooms from Chimera now the original 8-bit game was just this you know, bright yellow pixel art so i've kind of you know just done a metallic sort of version of that squeezed the toasters and the spanner in and the little robot that's walking around is my incredibly poor rendition of the main player character from chimera which i literally spent about 10 minutes making so that that's that kind of part the lift going up to it the music's from a magazine called your sinclair which um was one of the three big popular uh, Spectrum magazines in the UK. I guess it was kind of the same in the US, but we, the, we had a lot of personality in our, our magazines, particularly in the early 80s. And, um, you know, that was still the stage where the reviewers could review every single game that came out in a month. So they were real sort of, you know, kind of taste setters for the, the, the readers. And as a joke, uh, one of many that they they kind of did they put in a sort of rick astley mickey take song on the b-side of a cover mounted cassette that they had on the magazine and you guys predominantly use discs but we had literally you know cassette tapes for our games because it was cheaper so this music was on the b-side and i used to have it as a ringtone it was it's, it you know a really in joke for that magazine but it kind of ran and ran for a while it even got played once on national radio because someone mistook it for a real song so there was a, a sort of cult thing about it 
I really, really wanted to use it for the green light video because I knew, like, you know, it's probably a joke only a few thousand people would ever get, but I knew for those people it would just completely, you know, nail the sort of thing that I was doing. And I managed to track David Wilson down. Funnily enough, he's also working at Sony and just basically begged him, you know, can I use this music? Can I use this music? And uh, he'd sort of forgotten all about it and was just like, yeah, 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 of course. So um, stuck it in the lift as it seemed really appropriate. And um, yeah, it's really, it's it's kind of really worked. Um, it, it's, it's driven a lot of curiosity from, you know, certainly non-Brits are like, what the hell is this? And um, there's, a, you know, quite a few on the British side that's sort of like, oh my God, it's, it's you know, whistling Rick Wilson's hold my hand very tightly. So that was a, it was a good kind of joke that led to another joke, which was, uh, you know, really what a lot of the references in Luma are about. They're, 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 they're not, you know, things to kind of drive the gameplay or really, you know, sell the game. They're, they're just a historical reference to stuff that I grew up with or things that I've done in my career or things that are important, but also, you know, like a, a sort of salute to, you know, really the, the, the British industry that inspired me to, you know, become a game developer. So it was really nice that so many people kind of let me use, you know, bits and pieces to spice up the game. And even those jokes that aren't necessarily references or allusions to something, or at least ones that I'm not getting, are a welcome relief. Like, I'm playing this game where I am inundated with poisonous swamp gas at every turn, and then all of a sudden the solution to all that is a giant bar of soap. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the worst joke, in it, actually? But, you know, soap on a rope, don't drop the soap. Yeah, it's... I don't know, it's, it's, some of it's kind of like the, the you know... When you're doing the AAA stuff, particularly kind of like when you're a British developer, you end up working for a lot of American companies, so a lot of your product becomes Americanized, and it's hard to put your own sort of personality into it. In fact, most AAA games try, you know, avoid any kind of humor whatsoever because you know you're dealing with an international market, and it's completely understandable. I've no problem with that, but it's I really wanted to make. Um, or sort of going forward, Lumo being the starters. I want to make British games. I want to do something that's my, you know, personality. And I laugh way too easily at my own jokes. So once I started kind of doing this, and I'm sort of sniggering as I'm building something that I find quite funny, it, it just sort of, you know, carries on as it goes through. And it ended up being, you know, Lumo's personality. Lumo really became like the embodiment of a lot of things that I felt were important and humor's one of them and um i don't like the fact that we we tend to forget our de- you know our developers our heroes you know people that's really made stuff happen and you know they're all still around you can kind of talk to them you can meet them you can ask them questions you can ask to borrow their stuff and they're all really friendly and it it suddenly started becoming a bit more important to actually you know let's try and reference these things that's really give a salute to the the things that kind of inspired it and i had a a fair bit of help to get rights and stuff along the way so it's got a quirky personality it's very british there are you know the the references aren't there for everyone they're really not um if you get some of them they'll they'll surprise and delight you i'm the only person that's really gonna get a lot of the references that are in the game and that's fine because they don't affect any of the gameplay really they're 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 just little nods and winks tucked away in the side and and most of them are actually quite subtle there's a few bigger ones like the the, you know the pac-man maze and things like marble madness and stuff like that but they fitted within the game anyway and they were part of that kind of environmental 
story that I was telling. So they're not too incongruous for actually being in there. But yeah, it's like, I, you know, it's, we're making games. It's hard to take it seriously. So this is a game that continues a legacy of classic gameplay, but it's a kind of gameplay we haven't seen in a long time. Equinox came out in 1993. That's 23 years ago. We have gamers who were not even born back then. So how do you market a game that is such a classic style of gameplay to people who may have never seen it before and a game that's in a genre that really has no contemporaries, no comparables. I don't really com- you know, care about the lack of contemporaries. That's not important to me personally. It's probably more important to the publisher and the marketers because they like to have a very distinct message that they can go to market with. But I think Lumo's kind of, it's uh, distinctive in that sense. Okay, no one's seen an isometric game for a long time. But it's not like they have no touch point. Diablo's an isometric game, essentially. You know, um, there are, you know, people can look at the view and they can understand it and they can see what's going on. And Zelda is probably, you know, a reference people will feel as soon as they're in this environment because it is actually, you know, quite a close template you know if anything the zelda dungeons were probably doing the same thing as this genre was doing you know five or six years before so i don't think it's like uh gonna be an off-putting thing in any way and the marketing messages that i've seen go out has kind of been like that you know witnessed the rebirth of the genre and okay it's a a nice succinct way of putting it but i doubt many people are actually going to be making you know, arcade adventure games after this. I hope there are a few more because I quite like the genre. And there's certainly more stuff you could do with it than Lumo has done. But, you know, it's, it's the same with anything, really. It's The marketing message is only really going to go so far. You know, having good key art, having it, like you say, you know, shows, packs East and stuff like that so people can play it. That marketing message is, is kind of... You know, it's either going to open the door or it's going to be a slight amplifier of something that people are kind of feeling or you know, get in from the game anyway. And the market being what it is right now, it's, you know, it's hard to, to kind of get noticed. And if anything, I think our marketing has been quite good for that because the game has popped up in lots of places. Even if the players are scratching their heads, you know, if you're visible and they're inclined to try it, you know, I think that kind of works from our perspective. But I didn't, you know, I really didn't want to trade on you know, hey, this is a remake of Head Over Heels or this is, you know, Equinox 3 because it's not those things. It's, it's, it sticks to the genre and it's true to the genre, even to its negative points. You know, it's a remake of a kind of style of game. But I think it's successful in moving it forward and I think there's a lot of concessions to, you know, modern gamers and modern gameplay expectations that people feel comfortable with it once they play it. And it, it's, you know, it looks different. And, you know, maybe where we are right now in the cycle, looking different a, a good advantage to have rather than, you know, looking the same as everyone else's pixel indie game or something. That's true. The lack of contemporaries may make it hard to set player expectations, but it also means you have a lot less competition and thus you stand out more easily. Yeah, it's, I mean, games have always sold by how they look anyway. You know, it's like, I can't remember the strapline message for Gears of War. Um, but Gears of War sold because it was, you know, Unreal looking amazing on the 360. You know, and screenshots will probably take it further than the strap line. You know what I mean? So if you... I, I think Lumo, certainly in places, looks pretty beautiful. Other places is purposefully kind of 
dull for a reason. But, you know, when the lighting's in full swing and the particle effects are going and you've got all the reflections and stuff, it's, it's a fairly attractive game. It's certainly as attractive as I could make it on my own. So, you know, hopefully it's enough to turn people's eye. And the positive kind of reinforcement from the people who really do like it is always going to help you. You know, it's, I think it's just hard to market anything right now. You know, we, we live in a world where, you know, we can pretty much get access to any media we want on demand, essentially for free or small subscription price. And games are competing with a lot of that stuff. It's summer anyway. So that's always a, a fairly flat time to, to sell a game. So, you know, Lumo's in the same boat as everyone else in that sense, I guess. You know, we're all, you know, shouting and screaming and waving our hands, hoping people notice us. <laughs> so you've worked on a lot of titles before this, including titles like Crackdown, Black Hawk Down, Fable 2. When you started working on Lumo, or actually closer to the finish, you said in another interview, I was a bit stupid to take on Lumo with the cash I had at the start. I should have made something smaller. What would that have been if you had worked on something smaller than Lumo? See, originally I came to Finland and I was going to set up a, a satellite studio for um, Ruffian. And I had a certain level of kind of investment to do that. But there were some business problems back in the UK, which, you know, eventually led to me just going, okay, I'd, I'd better do my own thing. But I'd already spent a bunch of the cash that I'd brought over. And originally we were looking at doing this stu- uh, satellite studio for kind of original IP and, and mobile stuff. And so I was about, I don't know, I had a long way into doing a prototype of um, an Advance Wars type game for iPad. Because I think that was, a, you know, the platform's a really nice fit for just, you know, touching a tank, dragging it to a position, you know, maybe selecting an attack. It's all very quick input. You can play it lying down with the pad on your knee. It would work quite well. But I didn't really want to do the, the free-to-play market kind of on my own. It's, you, you need a, a certain amount of investment purely just for user acquisition. So when I started um, Lumo, the, the idea was probably to do something about the same size as the original 8-bit games. And I think Ed Overhills had, I might be wrong, but it's somewhere around 150 rooms. Monster Max, I think, has got about 200. And... The green light and everything going through that process, that was very much my goal. It's just I'll do 150 rooms and you know that'll be fine. It'll be a small little indie game that we can put up on Steam. But it really, it kind of snowballed, it escalated very, very quickly because um, like immediately after the green light, there were, you know, Nintendo were in touch. There were some other publishers in touch. Sony were, you know, offering dev kits and stuff idea xbox came through i got all the 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 xbox one kits and it was like right okay so there's a path to console you know this isn't just going to be a small little pc game i'm going to have to get on with it and it i had to make enough content that it felt like you know sort of value for money and instead of being a six month to one year you know little game it was very very quickly became this this kind of two-year game so that's really what stretched the money that that I had nowhere near enough cash to do, you know, two years. Would I have? St- would it have been better to stick with the kind of, you know, Advance Wars thing? Well, maybe, but the mobile market it really needs just a certain level of investment. I'd, I'd be really struggling to, you know, live off of the proceeds for that type of game if it went wrong. So Lumo, even though it was a bigger game and, and more of a stretch, was probably a safer bet at that time. But to, you know, again, it was, it was also like the, my first solo game, so there was a lot of 
you know, self-education that I had to kind of go through. Um, I could probably make Lumo much quicker now than I could have at the start. So, yeah, it was, I think it was the right decision in the end because I was a lot more invested in Lumo personally as well. The, 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 like I say, growing up with this genre, having the ability to make something incredibly British was, you know, that was a real motivation. So um, I don't think I'll go back to the Advanced Wars type thing now. I'll, I'll probably leave that prototype to wither and die. Well, on the topic of games that might have been, as a kid, you sketched out ideas for a game that was isometric but involved a time travel mechanic. Could we see that in a future game from you? Yeah, um, that's kind of moved. Yeah, so originally, um, when I was playing Head Over Heels, um, I did a bunch of... I basically did pencil sketches of another world for Head Over Heels, but the idea with that was you could kind of go backwards and forwards in time, so you could go backwards in time and affect the rooms, which would, you know, change the layout maybe of the rooms in the present, so you could kind of do stuff. And, yeah, I'd, I've always kind of, like, fancied doing that idea of, you know, simple things you might, you know, cut down a load of trees or something, and then eventually a bridge is going to grow there a thousand years later, stuff like that. You can, you know... I think it's quite a flexible site. There's a Metroidvania type game, which I've basically kind of sketched out and designed whilst I was doing Lumo. That at the minute has got the time travel stuff in, whether it keeps that in or not. I don't know. I'll probably have to actually do some actual dev on that and, and see where it goes. But yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I, I tend, I've got a notebook basically of ideas, which I've been, you know, sort of passing around or cut and pasting stuff into Google Docs or, you know, there, there's a whole big bunch of things that I still want to play with. How they coalesce into actual shipping games basically remains to be seen, I think. So someone who loves old games as much as you and I both do, I have to ask this question. I am a member of the Apple II community over here. You, yeah. I, I know that computer wasn't as popular in the UK. Yeah, too expensive. Right. And to be fair, too expensive over here as well. But there are still people who still use this machine over here, and I'm one of them. I have my Apple II GS sitting on my desk at work. So I have to ask if you still have your CPC or your ZX. Uh, I've got my ZX48K still boxed. Uh, that's in the cupboard. The Plus Two still there. The CPC still there. I sold my Commodore 64. Uh, under my desk right now, to the left of my dev PC, is my Amiga 1200. That's like in a tower with an 060 and connected to the LAN. Um, yeah, I've got every computer that was ever important to me, basically. I've got all my Amiga 500s. I've got a couple of spares for when they die. I've even got all of my consoles. They've, they've got too much kind of personal or sentimental value for me to really get rid of. I don't know. Yeah, computers have been a really important part of my life since growing up. And um, as stupid as it may sound, even that chipped PlayStation 1 that was knocking around in my university you know, lounge for three years is covered in dust and beer stains and cigarette ash i've still got that because it's you know we had good times on it it's very i find it i don't know they're not friends to me but you know what i mean they're, they're just, i've had a lot of good experiences with these machines i would i would never get rid of them so sure it's a touchstone i mean i keep all my video games not in alphabetical order but in the order in which i purchase them because i can look back and say oh yeah that was sophomore year of college that was junior year uh, that's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. um, the only thing I regret not keeping, actually, was the magazines. I was very kind of attentive to, and I kept all of my magazines as a kid, but when I left home, I didn't have anywhere to put them. 
So it's like, you know, I had a full collection of Superplay, Amstrad Action, your Sinclair, Nintendo Power, you know, Mean Machines. And, you know, it'd be epic to still have all of those. I really regret getting rid of those. Um, the only machine I didn't have a really close personal link to was the Commodore 64. So I had a big C64 collection, which I kind of got through college and university, and I did get rid of that. But no, everything else I've kept. I've, I've, I didn't keep all the Spectrum games because I kept like the ROMs are just more reliable. You, I mean, trying to run off cassettes now. A, where do you find a cassette player that works? And B, they never worked in the 80s. So trying to expect them to work 30 years later is just not going to happen. But the discs and stuff I've still got. And yeah, I, all my you know I've still got all my Super Nintendo games. I've still got all my NES games. I've actually added to both of those, and I've picked up things that I kind of wanted but never had at the time. You know, I got heavily into getting all the the Saturn shooters um, a few years back, so I managed to you know get Battle Garega and all of those types of things because um, the Saturn was just such a good machine. Yeah, as far as as far as that side goes, I, I've I. I don't have them on the shelf over here because our apartment's a little bit small, but they're all nicely boxed up in, in storage. So when we get a house, my girlfriend's fully aware that there's about 3,500 games that are going to come suddenly appearing on the walls. But yeah, it's, I don't know, it's nice to have that stuff. You know, it's nice to still be able to play it as well. It's, uh, some of those games are, you know, perfectly good as they were today. You know, you can still have a good, like imagine getting Bomberman out on the Super Nintendo with three or four friends. You know, I've still got the multi-tap. It all still works, and it's a riot for you know a few people back from the pub. So uh, that kind of stuff just never dies, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, just last year, somebody released a Bomberman clone for the Apple II GS, but it was only two-player, and so somebody else developed an expansion card for the Apple II that lets you plug in four controllers. Yeah, I mean, this stuff is phenomenal. It's like my Amiga is, you know. I've got a wireless networking for it. I've got normal networking for it. I've got, um, you know, compact flash card of four gigs. So basically anything that was ever released on the Amiga can go on this one compact flash card. I've got floppy drive emulators for the 8-bit computers and the Amiga. So stick an SD card in. You've got every game that's ever been released. I mean, the fact that people are still making new hardware for these computers is brilliant. And uh, just the community that, we, you know, I, I will... You know, if I see some of that new stuff that I like, I will pay for it because it's fantastic that people still make it and keep these machines alive. I know it's, you know, our kids are just going, well, "What are you doing?" But it's, it's great. It's phenomenal, and they can still, you know, go on the internet. It's amazing. It is. It makes it easy not only to access all those old games on a single SD card, but also to back up all those floppy disks that you had as a kid. Yeah, I mean, there's some of that in Lumo. There's some arcade machines at the start. And one of them's called Neutrino. And Neutrino is a game that me and some friends started making when I was, I think, 16. Um, and as you expect, we never finished it because like, in those days, we had to write an assembly language and it was all a bit more hardcore. Um, and we were just at that point of leaving school and discovering you know, pubs and <laughs> nightclubs and things like that. So it, didn't, it never got finished. But I did have all of the graphics and stuff, the music that we did... Uh, on the Amiga back then. So the arcade machine in Lumo is the original ship that I drew for the game, and the side art of the arcade is uh, a picture that was like the game over screen, and it's got the original logo and stuff on the bezel. So there's a few things like that. It, it's 
you know, I had all that stuff lying around and it was like, right, I'm, I'm going to, you know, release Neutrino in some form or another, even though it's, you know, 24 years later. Um, and then the, 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 the guys that I was working with when we were kids saw it and they were just like, all oh, right, finally it lives. It's, it's out. It's been released. So, uh, yeah, stuff like that's very cool. Um, I, I think I've kept all. I've still got like uh, a lot of the assembly language stuff I used to write on the Amiga. I've got all the music that I used to do in Pro Tracker, a bunch of like pixel art stuff from D Paint. I've, I've kept all of that stuff. It's actually on my hard drive, you know, right now. I can just pull it straight off the NAS. So, yeah, bit rot and and digital archaeology, I think, are uh, you know pretty important in that sense. And I like to have a touch point to what I did on those machines. It's very, very, very cool. And I think it's wonderful that all this informs Lumo. This is not just a game that you were inspired by as a kid and want to finally realize. It's something that belongs in this long lineage. And whether people recognize it as a standalone game in the year 2016 or as the extension of this history that you are still very much a part of and still very much thrive in, it's it's just a great game. It's something that brings back to life, something that we haven't seen in a long time, but renewed with a modern sense and vigor and it's just a great package well lumos people don't really get it because i don't really say about it but lumos effectively uh, it's a story about me when i say it's personal i I do kind of mean it at the start as you go through the the double doors there's two posters on the walls and they're for an event called retrovision and it's basically it's, it's what we call retro events over here. Loads of people turn up with old arcade machines or old 8-bit computers and consoles. They'll set them up and you can go and you can play the old games. And I went to this, um, the first three or four retro visions, and this was before I was in the games industry because uh, it took me about 10 years to actually get a job in it. And uh, it was the first time that I met actual real game developers, and it was very much the stepping stone into me getting into the games industry. So that's on the wall, really, as a nod to that stuff. It's got Neutrino in it, which is the first game. Ooh, Kung Fu was a design for a fighting game that we never finished. Um, Balls Up was a game that I released on the iPhone about eight, seven or eight years ago, 2009. And you get sucked into a game. It's a Tron joke. But you get sucked into the game, and it's it's a metaphor for me of starting out at these retro events, getting sucked into the games industry. The stuff that happens, you know, from that point on is, you know, it's set in this spacey background because you're in a game, you know, and it's references about games in a game. It's, you know, it's the whole thing I'm I'm trying to get across, um, and it's because it's not explained. It's great, whatever you think it is, that's fine. Um, and I really like having the space for the player to go, okay, we're doing this thing and this is what's happening. And there's no narrative and there's no text because it's up to you. You can take from it what you want. But for me, it's my story of getting sucked into the games industry. And now I'm having a, a bit of fun making a game that's, you know, referencing games. There's, there's crackdown stuff in there. You know, you, you get the agility orb and that's a, you know, direct nod to, to that franchise that we worked on. It's even got the Ruffian Games logo on the wall underneath it as a hello to all the people that I used to work with. You know, it's, it's, it's very directly tied to me on a personal level in that sense. But like I say, it, it's, no one would ever understand that or get it, but it, I've done it because it makes me feel good or it amuses me or, you know, this is finally the first time I get to express me in a game without worrying about a publisher or, or, or anything else. You know, I can just go a little bit wild for a while 
Um, so yeah, it, it's there's a lot of touchstones in it, a lot of touchstones from being a kid to being in the industry to you know kind of growing up with games or having heroes or being part of a, a culture of readers of magazines that were just funny that had you know running jokes. It's just a you know a hat tip to all that stuff, and it was good fun to make because of that. You know, which you need to do when you're solo because you can have dark days working on your own. So you need to you know motivate yourself and 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 lift yourself up and and carry on working so it was good fun and i think that's what resonates with the players can you remind us where to find this game online uh yeah so lumo's on steam it will be uh on the playstation network and i think in two weeks it will also be available on the xbox one store and uh, playstation vita version will be out as well so we've got ps4 uh windows mac linux Xbox One and Vita versions. So go to your friendly digital download store and uh, you should be able to find it. Any websites or Twitters that you want to plug? The official Lumo website is play-lumo.com. There's a load more information on there, including videos and directors' commentaries, which I'm publishing weekly at the minute. So it kind of explains some of the secrets in the game or what the motivation was for doing stuff, uh, a little bit about my background and, and kind of why I did it. So that might be of interest to some people just, you know, starting out who want to know more um my twitter's uh, corrupter with a k but i'm not very interesting you don't need to follow me yeah i think that's i think that's it really very good and show notes to all the resources referenced in this episode can be found online at indiesider.net slash 45 gareth thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure ken and uh yeah i hope to speak to you again soon this has been indiesider a game bits production Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net.